Wonderful friends. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, my name's Riley. I'm the pastor of the church. Work with a great team with Joel and Richie, and we have deacons. We have a wonderful church community. Um, we were cheering on the Matildas last night, uh, the songs and the Burnettes. We were at the Burnies and we were screaming. We were, we were worried, Richie and I, because we were like, we're going to lose our voice here and we're going to lead tomorrow. It was fun as an adult to dance around and sing and scream and yell. The kids were actually quite afraid. At various points, they left the room. The penalty shootout went on so long that at various points, the adults left the room because we couldn't handle it. It was just like, felt so sick to come that far. But then we got the win. So you might not go for Australia because you have a different cultural heritage and that's okay. But I was going for Australia and that was good. Um, Lewis here, he's English. And so for this week, we are sworn enemies. The gospel unites. So somehow we'll have to figure it out. But Wednesday night, Australia versus England in the World Cup final, semi-final. Uh, that'll be great. Well, friends, as Richard said when we began, uh, there, there is a joy I found last night, just screaming and yelling, dancing, having fun. Uh, but there, nothing compares to savouring Jesus Christ and to enjoying him, to knowing him and um, at times, we can get more excited about the things of this earth, but the things of this earth are really actually meant to be, we're not meant to go, oh, we shouldn't enjoy the soccer. They're meant to point us to the God who is the one who gives us the gift of sport and the gift of fun and dancing and singing. And the God that has given us that gift is the God who wrote the letter to the Romans um, through the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul for us today. And so this is a love letter from God to you this morning uh, to invite you into his joy. And we are in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15 today. If you turn in your Bible, so Romans chapter 1, verse 8 through 15. And I am going to preach on the whole thing. I'm not going to split it up today. So we're doing 8 through 15. Paul says this. This is the word of God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let me pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was 2008 after Jimmy Ellicamp's 18th, actually it was during Jimmy Ellicamp's 18th birthday where I left 
early. Sorry, Jimmy. Uh, I left his party early because I wanted to have a conversation with a young lady who I had fallen in love with. Maddie Spring, who is now my wife. And there'd been chemistry for quite some time. (laughs) And it was clear, like, I really liked her. uh, And I I was pretty sure she liked me. I'd sent some, you know, Secret Service agents to gather intel, found out, yes, there was mutuality. And I'm like, i got to act on this. So I found out on the Friday. By the Sunday, I was like, okay, well, we need to to have a conversation. Saturday, rather. We need to have a conversation about this. So... We left the party early. I said, why don't we go and pray? You know, that'll be a really good Christian thing to do. So I took her down to, I used to live in the Shire, down to Grace Point. We had this spot there where, you know, our church group called it Prayer Rock. And it was an ideal place to pray because you're on a rock overlooking bush. And it was really nice. And so we gathered to pray. And that wasn't uncommon for Maddie and I because we were, we were really on mission to our local high school, Kiriwi High. We, we wanted to see Christ known there. And we were running prayer groups and Bible studies and open-air evangelism. And so we used to pray often, and, and that's one of the things that drew us together. Uh, so I, I, on, under the pretense of prayer, I brought it to Prayer Rock to sort of do a define the relationship chat. And uh, so we sat there praying on the rock, and she's here, and I'm there. By the end of the prayer, I'd scooched all the way over next to Maddie, and I'm there. We, we got done praying. The sun was setting. It was ideal. And and I said to Maddie, look, I need to say something to you. I said, uh, and you can use this line. I'll give it to you for free. I said, uh, godliness is attractive and you're really godly. <laughs> I was like not even 18 at the time. So that's the best I could come up with. But I went on to tell her how, you know, I liked her and I wonder if she... You know, I had the same feelings, and she said, well, actually, I really do like you. And then I said, well, would you like to go out with me? To which she said, well, <laughs> I'm not sure God's calling to that because she was, felt like she was called to world mission, and she wasn't sure she wanted to have a boyfriend at this time. But she's like, I really do like you, and I'll, I'll pray about it. So naturally, I took that as a yes. Uh, we left Prayer Rock holding hands to confirm, you know, the yes. And we went to Haley Guy's party. We didn't tell people we were going out, but I was like over the moon. So then we got to school during the week and I started telling people, like, basically we're going out. And then she heard that I was telling people that we were basically going out. She's like, well, we're not going out. I said, well... We're going to need to figure this out. So we had another DTR to find the relationship. But this time I was like, I have to get this done. So I just called her. I should have done it in person, but I called her and I said, well, Maddie, will you go out with me? And she said, yes. And so that's when we started dating and we sorted it out. And there was, thankfully, it all worked out in the end, despite my poor and feeble attempts. Uh, apparently, though, in the dating world, I, I looked up like defining the relationship. It seems like things are really complex in the dating world at the moment, especially if you don't kind of follow a biblical pattern. People sleep together first and then figure out if they're dating. Um, People see each other or multiple people at the same time, but they're kind of all aware that that's happening. And you can be in these long-term relationships, which they now call situationships, where it's like you're not really dating, it's a bit of a situation because you like each other but you're not sure what to do, or you're dating someone that you just text, so it's a text relationship, never heard of it, or even a non-relationship, a non-relationship, that's, that's where we've gotten to. I think driven really by a fear of committal. Um, and hence the need for a renewed interest in the DTR, the define the relationship chat. 
Now, as much as things have changed and culture has moved on, this actual section in verses 8 to 15 is a little bit like the define the relationship chat. Uh, Paul has never actually been to Rome. He's been an apostle for 20 years. Uh, The Roman church has been planted, but Paul's never been there. But he's an apostle. He has authority. But he doesn't want to come in heavy-handed because Paul's reputation precedes him. People know about Paul. People know that he's this figure that brings trouble wherever he goes. Uh, the Roman church might have you know, had various views about him. Some would have been for Paul. Some would have been against him. And so Paul writes verses 8 to 15, and indeed actually the whole book of Romans, as a part of a defining the relationship chat. But in this little section where Paul explains the situation and why he wants to come to them, we're going to learn important things about the Roman church. We're going to learn some things about Paul. But we're actually going to learn some important things for us as well. So as we investigate this text, I've got three questions to ask you this text to help us learn this morning and put God's word to effect in our life. First question is, who are the Romans? Second question is, why does Paul want to go there? And the third question is, What does this mean for us? So let's dive in and have a look at these great verses that at first point don't look like they apply a whole lot, do they? But we're going to see that they do. So first question is, who are the Romans? We're going to spend a long time studying this letter, but I didn't want to bore you, not that it is boring, but I didn't want to begin our series on Romans with a whole bunch of demographical ideas about who the Roman church is, but now it's an appropriate time for us to get a bit of an understanding of who the audience is, because it shapes how the letter is written. So if you look back to verse 7, Paul tells us, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul immediately says, the connection is between verse 7 and 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So first clues are pretty obvious to who the Romans are. Firstly, they're people who live in Rome. There you go. Uh, They put their faith in Jesus Christ. Importantly, we're told they are loved by God, like we saw in the exhortation in the worship time. They're called according to God's eternal plan, which, again, we had a prophetic impression about calling and election. And their faith is known around the world, uh, the, the known world at the time. Because you've got to remember, Rome is like New York City. Ro- Rome is like the center piece of culture and money, and it's where the emperor lives. And so to have a thriving church in Rome is sort of a statement. It's sort of a big deal. Uh, The reason why any of us know about Tim Keller, if you know that name, a Presbyterian pastor who recently died, we only know of him really because he planted a thriving church in New York City. Because he was able to have a beautiful, grand, healthy, multiplying church in such a godless and hard place to minister gave him prominence. People know Tim Keller all around the world, and so it is with the Roman church. Because in Rome, in the center of power, There's a church. People can see the power of the gospel. Now, we know that Paul hasn't been there yet. He tells us in chapter 15. And we know that he didn't plant the church because he says, I want to come to you, but I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. So who planted this church? How did these Romans become Christians? Well, the truth is we actually don't know. Some early church 
sources seem to think that Peter did it, but it's pretty unlikely um, that he did. Um, the best guess we can probably make is that at Pentecost, if you remember, Jesus died. 40 days later, uh, the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. Peter got up and preached to the masses at Pentecost. At Pentecost was a Jewish festival where all the Jews who were dispersed around the Roman Empire would come back to Jerusalem for a party. Uh, and they would be from all different parts, including Rome. Acts chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that there were visitors from Rome in Jerusalem at the time. They would have heard Peter preach the gospel and most likely probably went back home eventually to Rome and brought the gospel with them. Likely they would have gone first to the Jewish people and started a church, but then they would have, like as the church, if you read the book of Acts, the church eventually goes from the Jews to the Gentiles. So the Roman church would preach and eventually slaves and freedmen and, and different people would come in and they had a church in Rome. If you read Romans 16, it looks like there's possibly multiple house churches in Rome at the time rather than one conglomerate church. But nonetheless, we have this kind of probable case where we don't know who planted it, but there's a, there's a church happening in Rome. But this well, kind of leads to another question of, you know, what would it have been like to be in that church? You've got to try and put yourself back into the first century and think, what would it be like to be a Roman citizen and to have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time? You've got no category for this. You've got an idea there's Jewish people that live in the city and they, they fear God and they, they only worship one God and that's a bit peculiar. In fact, they were called atheists. Uh, because they didn't believe in all the pantheon of gods. Uh, they believed only in one god. So to, to the Roman pagans, they were like atheists. Uh, and so they, they, they would have known of Jews. They would have experienced Jewish people. But then someone would have come to a, a, a Gentile Roman, a pagan who worships you know, Mars and, and Jupiter and Nike, all these brands, <laughs> uh, and who were gods over various realms. And, and they would have heard a story something like this that there's actually one God, not many, that he has a son, but his son is not the emperor. They actually believe the emperor at the time was a God, but that's not God. He was a man that lived in Palestine, some you know, hundreds of kilometers away. They would have learned that this God is actually angry with our sins, and that probably would have made sense to them. But instead of punishing us for our sins, he sends his son into this world in flesh, not to rule over us, not to be triumphant and glorious, but instead to be tortured and killed and to die as a sacrificial propitiation on the cross for our sins. Uh, it would have been such a jarring and it would have blown their mind that, that God, Instead of them offering sacrifices to appease God and get God's favor, God offered his son as a sacrifice to appease his own wrath so that he could make humans his friend again. And they would have found out that it wasn't by all these works that they had to be saved and all these temple sacrifices, the ongoing nature of coming to the temple and, and vowing to the gods and making pledges, that instead all you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Palestinian man from a couple you know, decades ago, 
and God will make you one of his very own sons. You'll enter a new kingdom. You'll be citizens of a new kingdom. You'll be an inheritor of the earth. You'll have a new name, a new destiny, a new hope, and you'll have God on your side no matter what. And you'll be shown how to live a truly meaningful and ethical life, which was of concern to the Romans at the time. So you can see a glory to it, but it still would have like not made any sense to their worldview. It'd be like, this is just totally upside down. And that's why Paul makes it clear that the only way that these Romans are saved is by the grace of God. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called. Salvation only comes to human beings, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, yourself, myself, because of God's prior activity. God had a plan for the Roman church before the creation of the earth to choose them to be Christians, to believe in his son so that they would be known throughout all the earth for his glory. It's the same for you and I. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the only reason you do is God, God acted upon you first. He chose you before the foundation of the earth. He loved you and he awakens your heart to put your faith in him. Otherwise, the message of the gospel would make no sense to you and you would never believe it. So that's what it would have been like for a Gentile Christian. I won't go into what it would have been like for a Jewish Christian, but you've got this scenario where you've got Jews and Gentiles coming together, which wouldn't have ever happened before, into one church. So then that leads to the next question. Well, what would the Roman church have looked like in terms of makeup? Which actually really influences how you read the letter. Some people think it was mainly a Jewish church with some Gentiles. Other people think it was mainly a Gentile church with some Jews. Some people think it was completely Gentile with no Jews at all. Uh, The commentators go all different directions on this uh, because at various points, Romans seems as though if he's speaking to just one group and not the other or just the other group and not the other. So it's kind of like bit back and forth. If we do a bit of study in history, though, we can kind of come up with a a likely solution. Uh, So in... Um, AD 49, the Emperor Claudius, he got a bit sick of all the Jews, um, but I think he mistook them for Christians uh, because the Jews and the the Jewish Christians would have been preaching to their friends and family that you need to believe in Christ. He's the saviour of the world and you need to give up on all of what you're doing and become a Christian. And they got really angry at this. Uh, And so there were riots in Rome at the time. And so the Emperor Claudius just said, if you're a Jew, you're out. And he banished all the Jews from Rome in AD 49. Uh, There's a Suetonius, a Roman historian, tells us that uh, he banished them because they were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, which we think is probably Christos, which is the Greek Latinized version of Christ. And so what happens is that the church in Rome, which was thriving or whatever, suddenly, boom, all the Jews are gone. They have to leave. And then... Bit by bit, the Gentiles would have had to take over. All right, who's preaching this week? Well, it was, you know, whoever, I don't know. Think of a Jewish name. I'm going to... Solomon. It was Solomon. (laughs) Brother Solomon was preaching. Now it's, you know, Tertius or someone. And and, uh, who's leading worship? Uh, Okay, well, you know, it was Levi. Now it's, you know... I should have planned this out. Anyway, you get the point. (laughs) Then four years later, Emperor Claudius dies. So his edict goes with it. And so slowly the Jews come back into the church. 
Uh, and so people like Priscilla and Aquila, who we meet in Acts 18, uh, they, Paul met them in Corinth because they'd been banished from Rome, Acts 18, 20. Well, at Romans 16, he, he mentions Aquila and Priscilla again. So they've obviously made their way back to Rome. And you can imagine now some tension, right? So Gentiles, you know, we're there. And now Levi's back. And he's like, well, I probably should lead worship again because, you know, I am like linked to Asaph and the Psalms and all that. And, and Solomon, he's like, well, I wrote a book. Of, no, he, yeah, you know, my name's in the Bible, so I probably should preach. But the Gentiles are like, well, we've been doing pretty good without you guys for four or five years. And so most likely is that there's tension in the Roman church. Uh, and so it's probably a mixed church, um, which is why some of the chapters in Romans exist. If you look at chapter 4, it's like, what do we do with Abraham? If you look at the whole you know, thrust of 1 to 8, the law and the gospel, what do you do with them? Romans chapter 9 through 11, the, the nations and the Jewish nation. How does, what's God's plan for both? If you look at chapters 14 and 15, what do we do with feast days and with food? Um, you see a little bit of an example in Romans 15, verse 5 to 7. He says, Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Part of the reason why Paul is writing the letter to the Romans is to harmonize and unify the church. Because what the gospel does is it brings, look at this room, all different nations and backgrounds together into one setting, into one family. It would have been bad for the gospel if there was a Jewish church in Rome and a Gentile church in Rome. Paul wants to bring them together. That's one of his purposes. So at times, Paul will reference you Gentiles, and other times, us Jews. There's both in the church. Probably, maybe, a Gentile minor a majority, um, but they all together have one common need, Jesus and harmony with each other. Okay, so who are the Romans? Well, we've learned probably a Gentile majority church, still with many Jews within it. They likely met in a number of house churches. Paul actually knows many of them. If you read chapter 16, you'll see that. Uh, they gather, uh, they love, they worship, uh, they know Jesus Christ, they're loved by God. Uh, but Paul hasn't yet been there to serve them, which is a bit strange if you think about it. He's the apostle to the Gentiles and he hasn't been to New York City. You know, he hasn't been to the, the big dog city of the time. And that's where we get to question number two. Why does Paul want to go there? And he actually tells us so we don't have to make it up, which is helpful. Uh, last week, but I want to make the connection between this, this week and last week. Last week, Paul gave the reason for his life and clue, it's the reason for our lives too. Look at verse 5. So through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. So a gracious apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The driving force of Paul's life, and in fact, all of our lives, is to see the name of Jesus lifted up and enjoyed through the proclamation of the gospel and the obedience to that gospel, Jew and Gentile. And for that reason, Paul is like, I can't wait to get to Rome. I got to go there because this is why I exist. I want the obedience of faith in your presence. 
Look at verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul sees already that the obedience of faith has gone forth in Rome. And so he's, what's his natural response? Oh, I thank God for that. He so wants it to happen that he would come into a church like this and he would say, I thank God for you because you've believed the gospel. You know Jesus Christ and you live for his glory. Oh God, thank you for doing that because he wants to see more and more communities bow to the knee of Christ. This is one of our distinctives as a church. We want to be a thankful church for what God is doing in the lives of other people. And Paul instinctively is like, God is at work in you, Rome, and I thank God for that. Verse 9, he explains his heart. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Do you notice in Paul defining the relationship, he wants them to know that he really actually did want to come. Maybe they doubted, maybe they didn't know, but he's like, I, like I'm, he's actually swearing by God. Uh, so it shows that there's like an appropriate time to invoke, like God is my witness. I'm not just saying, you know how we say things, right? I'm praying for you or, you know, you're on my heart. Or, but God, he's, God is my witness. I really want to come. He wants them to know deeply, that this is at the passion of his life. He wants to get there. And he gives three reasons why he wants to go, and I'm just going to look at them in succession. So number one is verse 11 and 12. Why does he want to go to Rome? Well, verse 11 and 12 says, for I long to see you. Again, you see his pastoral heart. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul wants to go there. He longs to see them face to face. He's heard about them, but he wants to see them. And he wants to bring them a spiritual gift. We don't know what it is. It's pretty undefined. It's pretty ambiguous. It's most likely the gospel, as we'll see in verse 15. So he wants to go to them to bring the gospel to them. What better spiritual gift is there than to hear the gospel again and again? Nothing is better than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's like, I'm going I'm to come and I'm going to preach. And it's going to be great because it's the gospel and it's always good. But then verse 12, he kind of like instinctively comes back to not correct himself, but to make sure they understand, I'm not coming in as like, the Apostle Paul, kiss the ring. It's not like that. He's like, I'm going to be blessed by coming to you as well. There's a mutuality here, which is so wonderful about the church that it's not like, well, the pastor and then you guys, and I'm here to just serve you and I don't get anything from you. It's just my burden. It's my duty. No, instead, there's a mutuality to the faith that we all serve one another. Your faith encourages my faith. Paul's like, I'm ready to be filled up. So I'm coming. I'm coming to Rome because I'm expecting your gifts to serve me. Uh, and that's what we do every Sunday morning. We build one another up. We don't just come for me to impart some spiritual gift to you and you're like, wow, that was really, you know, whatever it was. Uh, but we come to share it mutually, like this and like that. Secondly, so he wants to impart a spiritual gift. Secondly, verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. So you see the intensity. 
But thus far I have been prevented, presumably by the will of God, in order that I, here's his purpose, that I may reap some harvest among you, among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So his second desire is he, he wants to reap a harvest. He wants to go and preach the gospel and see people saved. He wants to see God's work go forward. He wants to see the obedience of faith among the nations. That leads to the third reason, verse 14 and 15. Why does Paul want to go? I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The third reason he wants to go to Rome is he wants to preach the gospel to them and to those outside the church. Notice that language there. He says, I am under obligation. Another way you could say it is I am indebted. I am in debt to you. What, is, what does Paul mean by that? It's strong language. Um, we already know from verses you know, 1 and 5 that Paul was called to be an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God. He's, uh, he's an apostle. So the, in one sense, God has told him to do it. Uh, but there's more to it than that. Uh, but that's certainly included. Uh, there's two ways you can be in debt, right? Um, if I borrow $10,000 from you, I'm in debt to you until I pay it back. But Paul hasn't borrowed anything from the Romans. He's never been there. He's got no debt to them because he's not been there yet. Another way you can be in debt is if someone gives you money to give to someone else. So if Richie gives me $10,000, that'd be nice. And then, but he says, but give it to Lewis. I'm picking on you today. You sit in the front row. <laughs> then I'm under debt to Lewis. I'm under obligation until I deliver that $10,000 to Lewis. That's what Paul's saying here. I've been entrusted. I'm a steward of the gospel. My job is to take the gospel for the obedience of faith, for the sake of his name, among the nations. Haven't been to Rome yet. Therefore, I'm in debt to you, Romans. I've got to go and preach the gospel to you. Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I've been entrusted, or a steward of the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So Paul has this idea, I'm entrusted with the gospel, I've got to deliver it everywhere I go. That's my obligation. But verse 15 teaches us that it's not just like, well, it's my job description and I signed up for this. Verse 15, look at it again. I am eager to preach the gospel to you. I am eager. That, that word means willing service. So yes, it's his job, but it's more than that to Paul because what animates him? For the sake of his name, obedience of faith among the nations. I'm eager. I want to get there. Yes, it's my job, but this is also my joy. And notice too that he wants to preach the gospel not just to unbelievers in Rome. That would make sense. But he says, I want to pre I'm eager, look at verse 15, to preach the gospel to who? To you. So Paul's desire is to preach it to barbarians and to Greeks. That means to the cultured and uncultured, to the wise and the foolish, but also to the church. It's really important we understand this. The gospel is not just for our salvation. The gospel is for our entire Christian life. The gospel is not just the foundation of our faith. It's the entire house. Paul wants to preach the gospel to them because they need the gospel as Christians. 
You need the gospel each and every day. I need the gospel each and every day. David Pryor, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, says, We never move on from the cross of Christ, only into a more profound understanding of the cross. What has to happen is the gospel saves us and then it moves into the center of our life. And the gospel is shorthand for just the message of the gospel and Jesus Christ and God the Father. So God is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. The message of salvation is the gospel. Becomes the Son. And then all of our life orbits around the Son. And if you remove the gospel out of the center and put anything else in the center, your whole life goes out of orbit. Your whole life doesn't start to make sense. It's like you're out of tune. And you can't get back in tune by tuning to all the other things. You have to get in tune to the gospel. If you have an orchestra and one person's out of tune or everyone's out of tune and then they all try and tune to each other, they'll never be in tune. You need the true C or something, whatever it is. I don't know how you do it. Music people, you understand. That's how you get the orchestra in tune. And so Paul's eager to preach the gospel because he knows the gospel is going to get this church in tune. How do you get racial harmony? The gospel. How do you see lives change? The gospel. How do you bring Jew and Gentile together? The gospel. Everything comes back to the gospel. And so he's eager to bring the gospel. You need the gospel today. I need the gospel today. And so Paul is eager to preach the gospel. So why does Paul want to go to Rome? He gave us three reasons. Verse 11 and 12, to give and receive a spiritual gift. Verse 13, to reap a harvest. And verse 14 and 15, to preach the gospel. Christopher Ash wants to highlight, though, the, the, the central thrust of this passage in his commentary. He said, This section is full of verbs expressing emotion and desire. He thanks God, he serves God wholeheartedly, he prays constantly, he longs to see them, and he's planned many times to come and see them, but above all, he is eager to preach the gospel to these Christians in Rome. What marks Paul's life and drives him is gospel eagerness. So we know who the Romans are, we know why Paul wants to go there, but what does it actually mean for us? That's question number three, final question for today. What does this mean for us? us. Remember, these verses are not just here for historical posterity and preservation. It's not here merely to inform us. Paul isn't even writing to the Romans just merely to inform them. He's actually writing, I think, more deeply to inspire them. He not only wants to inform them, he wants to inspire them. He wants them to catch his vision for gospel eagerness so that it will become theirs as well. We didn't go into it, but if you look at chapter 15, he says, I want to make like a base camp with you here so I can go up to Rome. And I need you to, uh, to Spain. And I need you to support me so that I can go to Rome. So he wants them to catch a vision for the gospel going forward and the gospel going inward in the church's life. And Christopher Ash, I think, helpfully put this in the commentary. And I wanted to read it to you. He said, I take it that Paul's aim in communicating his eagerness in verses 8 to 15 is so that they too will begin to share that gospel zeal. There is a difference between understanding the truth, those glorious truths we saw in 1 to 7, and having the gospel eagerness of 8 to 15 coursing through our veins. This is the challenge to the preacher. 
So to pray and so to preach this passage that people do not go away just with full notebooks, agreeing with what we have said. Our longing must be that they go away determined for the gospel to be preached and heard. A sermon that leaves people saying, I think I get it now, has fallen short of the aim. We want people to go away not only with clarity in their heads, but fire in their hearts. May God do that even now. May you and I have a passion and eagerness for the spreading of the gospel in our city and in our church. May we be gospel eager ourselves. May we have a similar obligation and burden like the Apostle Paul. The contrast would be as if we were gospel indifferent, happy to have the gospel preached, happy for other people to do it, but for us, you know, we're just indifferent to it. It doesn't matter to our life. It's like, we, well, that was nice, that was Sunday, and then we go on to Monday, uh, and it doesn't connect. But I want us to be a, an, an eager church, a, a church that has a sense that we too are under the obligation of the gospel, that Paul's gospel eagerness would be our gospel eagerness as well. So what would that look like? Well, I want to make two points of gospel eager application for us. Number one, may we, like Paul, be eager to share the gospel with unbelievers. May we, like Paul, be eager to share the gospel with unbelievers. Without a doubt, that is one thing that drives the Apostle Paul. John Stott, in his commentary, said, People nowadays, and this was like 35 years ago, tend to regard evangelism as an optional extra and consider, if they engage in it, that they're conferring a favour on God. Paul spoke of it as an obligation. The modern mood is one of reluctance. Paul's was one of eagerness or enthusiasm. If the gospel has come to us, which it has, we have no liberty to keep it to ourselves. Nobody may claim a monopoly on the gospel. Good news is for sharing. We are under obligation to make it known to others. Paul was eager because he was in debt. It is universally regarded as a dishonorable thing to leave a debt unpaid. We should be as eager to discharge our debt as Paul was to discharge his. Paul wants to inspire the Romans to preach the gospel to the Romans. And by the Holy Spirit, that's our obligation too. You and I have an obligation to those who do not know this glorious gospel to share the news that there is a saviour, there is eternal life, that there is hope, that there is a way of living that actually makes sense. And we're indebted to our friends and family to share it. And personally, I was convicted this week, feeling like, oh, I struggle to do this. I lack faith in doing this. I'm not anywhere near the gospel eager pastor I should be. But may God move in you and I to have an eagerness to do it, to be thinking, how can, I, how can I love my friends? How can I share it with my neighbor, my colleagues, my co-workers? How can I do it in a way that makes sense and is clear? Paul says to the Colossians in verse, chapter 4, verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I was doing a Bible study with a brother this week and we were looking at this verse and just trying to figure out how do we just season our conversations with a bit of salt. We can't go full on like soapbox preaching every day. It's not how life works. It's, we're not the Apostle Paul. You're not a pastor. I'm the only. But we all have a duty to try and walk in wisdom with those who are outside the church, so to love them, so to do it wisely and judiciously, and to season our conversations with salt. Not dump like salt, you know, just smash them with it, but season it. Salt makes things taste better when you have a little bit of it. It just enhances. And, and so we want to put rocks in people's shoes. Be like, oh, there's a, there's a better way to live. Oh, I just feel so confident by, by God's love for me. Uh, I've, I've learned from the scriptures how to parent. And I just find it so much, such a better way than what I was doing in my flesh. My marriage has never been what it's been until I listened to what God had to say. We're seasoning our conversations with salt so that we can have opportunities to share the gospel. So are you eager, honestly, to share the gospel? Not just compelled, like, oh, i got to do it. But is there an eagerness? May we be eager. May God grant me and grant you an eagerness to overcome our fear and our shame and to love people enough. It can look various in various different ways. One, one way we can demonstrate gospel eagerness for proclamation of the gospel is prayer. We did it today. We prayed for global mission, praying for your friends and family. Paul says in that Colossians passage just before, he tells them to pray for him. He knows he needs prayer. I need prayer. You need prayer. Pray for our church that we can be on mission. Financial support. At the end of Romans 15, he tells them, I'm going to need your cash. <laughs> Financial support for the gospel. Uh, practical means to help the gospel go forward. Like many of you made meals for our Gospel Alpha course. There's different ways in which you can be eager for the gospel to go forward. It doesn't always involve verbal proclamation of the gospel. But if your heart is eager for the gospel to go forward, you think, well, I'm going to come to mission prayer because I want the gospel to go forward. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you know, various events. I'm going to go out. I'm going to share. I'm going to ask for people to help me. That's what it can look like. Second area of gospel eager application May we, like Paul, also be eager to share the gospel with believers. May we, like Paul, also be eager to share the gospel with believers. If you look around this room, look around. Do it. Hello. It's awkward. Hi. Um, Everyone here in this room needs the gospel today. We need to be refreshed and reminded. And I don't have time to get around and dispense the gospel to each person. Our job as a church is to dispense the gospel to one another, to come to church ready to refresh each other in the gospel again. One great application is life group. One reason we need to be committed to coming to our life groups, our home fellowship groups, is so that you can be a part of proclaiming the gospel to your friends in your life group. People need fellowship and we need snacks and it's nice to have community. Great. But what you need to do when you come to life group is be eager to share the gospel with your friends in life group. Because whatever problem we've got, ultimately the answer is the gospel. And ultimately, what your friends need to hear is not just the life group leader giving counsel from the gospel, but everyone in the group saying, well, 
the message of Jesus Christ. Let's think about how the gospel applies to this circumstance. What, would, what does it say in the Bible about our sin? And then how did God fix it through Christ? And then he's given us his Holy Spirit. He's coming back again. How does that affect your life and your situation? One way for you to be gospel eager is to be eager to share the gospel with your friends at church. Remember that Paul said he's eager to bring a spiritual gift and to be mutually encouraged by, he says, each other's faith. If you don't come to life group or growth group, how can you mutually encourage those in your life group or growth group with your faith? Now, you might feel like, I don't have a very big faith to encourage anyone. The smallest bit of faith demonstrated in a gospel conversation is encouraging. Let me tell you that. I love hearing the smallest, tiny, little kernel of faith where you're attempting to trust in God in whatever way and whatever weak way I try and do it. That encourages. When someone's like, I just want more of Jesus, but I'm struggling with all these things. That encourages. So I just want to commend to you, church, the priority and the necessity of our life groups and our fellowship groups. Because these, you know, church is really quick, it's busy, there's things all going on. These are moments where we can slow down and be eager to share the gospel and mutually encourage one another, everyone playing their part. So we had three questions. Who were the Romans? Why did Paul want to go there? And what does it mean for us? And I just want to finish by summarizing and saying, I want us to be like Paul, inspired and equipped to be eager for the gospel, to be shed abroad, out there and in here. We all need the gospel. And so let's be passionate for its proclamation to outsiders and to insiders. Let's pray. Father, I pray and ask that you would help that to happen in my life and in our lives, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our singleness, in our friendship groups, in our workplaces. May we be gospeling wherever we go. Help us to do it wisely, to season our conversations with salt, uh, to be judicious in our speech, to always be looking to be loving and careful and discerning. But Lord, would you put a fire in our hearts, a zeal for the sake of your son Jesus' name that there's a part of us who just can't keep it in. We, just, we almost have to hold back the salt rather than think, oh man, I've got to find where it is. It's, it's, Lord, would you do that for us? Yes. Even today, would you give us opportunities to immediately apply the word as we go out to have a coffee and pick up and do whatever we need to do. May we seek to encourage each other with our faith and spur one another on. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's not yet a follower of you, who hasn't yet put their faith in Christ, Lord, would you save them and call them to yourself this very moment? Would they realize that they must, must put their faith in your son Jesus to have eternal life? And Lord, would they do that right now? And Father, would you help us to enjoy you and live for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.